Well, good morning, GT family. It's so good to be in the house of God and just worshiping together and just uh, exciting for our Youth Sunday gathering just to have all these teenagers helping us out and leading us in worship and just exciting to see what the Lord is doing in the church. Uh, if you're new, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at GT. We are so glad that you have joined with us, whether you're in person or online. And it's Youth Sunday, so I had to wear my, my Nike Air Maxes here, so I had to get some... Some sneaker game going on here on New Sunday, but yeah. Well, we have had a lot going on here at GT. It's been kind of a whirlwind, and so we wanted to bring you up to date on some things about our board. Um, because it was Easter weekend just a couple weekends ago, uh, prior to that weekend, we actually had our annual general meeting, which is a, a thing for all our voting members to be a part of, and we nominated three new board members. And so we just wanted to kind of let you know who our board members were. If you're new to GT, that gives you kind of an understanding of how we function in our, our governance and leadership structure. But also, if you see these people, you can interact and talk with them. Um, you don't have to take complaints to them just because they're on the board. Uh, but you can, you can if you just so desire. But uh, I, I, the real reason is we, we really want you just to be praying for these board members. We believe that the Lord has, uh, has these people serving in this time and this season for a specific reason. And it's important that we lift up our leadership and uh, that we are always covering them in prayer. So our three new board members are Mark McPhail, Alan Root, and Dave Barnaby. And so they were elected in this last official AGM. Uh, we also have continuing board members of Tom Buscarino, Mitzi Dodd, Jason Doggart, Tony Ekadu, I believe the father of the young lady who was just in the video testimony here. And uh, by the way, I am a major fan of Lisa Ekadu. That girl is incredible, and just, yeah, she is, what a heart, what a servant's heart, and what a great leader, and so, uh, Tony, you are Lisa's father to the majority of us here, but we love you as well, so... Uh, Patrick Lee is also a board member and Calvin Tapley. So those are our board members. And I would just encourage you, uh, be lifting these people up in prayer. Uh, if you ever have questions or thoughts about GT, these are people that are open to talk to. And, and uh, they're great people, very approachable. And uh, we're just excited about the next season that we have together. Amen? All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 20. And uh, I'm really excited for the word here today. And we will be closing uh, at the table of the Lord in participating in communion here this morning. And so hopefully you got your elements when you came in today. Um, but this morning, we are in week two of a series that we are calling, This is What Jesus Does. Everyone say that. This is what Jesus does. And in this series, what we are doing is we are looking at what some call the post-resurrection accounts, where we're looking at Several stories, several narratives where Jesus, after his death and resurrection, goes and pursues different types of people, basically to reveal himself as the resurrected Lord to them. Now the reason this is important and why we're teaching on this here at GT over the past couple of weeks is that when we look at these narratives of these post-resurrection accounts, I believe we get a glimpse into the heart of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and that Jesus goes pursuing people that have given up on him. Now, Jesus has just conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. But before he ascends into heaven, Jesus is very intentional to say, there's some people that i go, got to go have conversations with. 
There's some people that I got to go dialogue with and engage with because there's some people that need to experience me in my resurrected form. And so when we look at these stories, I believe we're getting a glimpse into the heart of God that God, I say this all the time, but it's important for us to understand, is relentless in his pursuit of his people, meaning that he's always coming after us. Even when we give up on him on this side of eternity, God is never giving up on us. He is chasing us down. He's always coming after us. He's always pursuing us. He's always giving us warnings. And he's saying, would you turn from that way and will you turn back towards following me? Because when you follow me, you will actually discover what it means to be fully human. You will actually discover your purpose in life. You will actually discover that very thing that you were created for. And so this is what Jesus does. Now this morning we're going to read from John chapter 20, and I want us to stand for the reading of God's word here today. And it's a story about a guy named Thomas. And starting off in verse 24, the writer says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. and Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here this morning. Now, out of this text here today, I want to ask you this question. And it's a very important question. Sometimes it's the question that conjures up um, some embarrassing moments in our lives is a question that many times reminds us of our past, some, some good things, sometimes some bad things. But the question is simply this. Have you ever been defined by something because of one weak moment in your life? Have you ever been defined by something because of one weak moment in your life? How many people have ever had a nickname before? How many people had a nickname that just stuck with you no matter how much you wanted to get rid of it, you could not get rid of it? Right? How many people learned to grew to appreciate that nickname? How many people despise that nickname even today when you think about it? Because it conjures up some emotions and some feelings and maybe some traumatic experiences. I grew up with the last name Woodcock. And so you can imagine growing up my entire life, I've heard it all. I've experienced it all. I, I've had, it's kind of like the Johnny Cash song, Boy Named Sue, if you've ever heard that song before. I had to grow up tough because I had the last name Woodcock. My wife, her maiden name was Munoz. Her uh, grandfather was from Honduras, and so she had this beautiful Latin last name. And, and uh, I felt so bad for her on our wedding day <laughs> because... She had to give up this incredible, beautiful name, Munoz, to welcome to the land of Woodcock, right? So it, it, it's, a, it's a name, it's a last name, and because of that last name, there have been many nicknames that I have experienced in my life. Now, this morning in the story in John chapter 20, this is actually the story of Thomas. Thomas has forever been nicknamed Doubting Thomas because of one moment of analytical questioning in regards to the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so throughout all of church history, because of this one week moment in his life, Thomas is forever nicknamed Doubting Thomas. And so many times we actually easily forget that Thomas had left everything he had and actually followed Jesus now for three and a half years. And just like many others, he had placed his faith and his trust in Jesus as Messiah, and things didn't quite turn out the way he anticipated them to be. You see, Thomas also had his preconceived ideas of what the Messiah's kingdom was going to look like, and crucifixion was not a part of it. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, we actually read that Thomas was literally ready to die for the sake of Christ. We see that in John chapter 11, verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that they may die with him. Now the name Thomas, it means twin, and actually many people believe it could represent split or multiple personalities. We don't know a lot about the details about Thomas. We know a little bit about the end of his life according to church history, but there's a basic understanding that when it comes to Thomas, not only was he a person full of doubt, but he was also a person that had highest of the highs and lowest of the low kind of experiences in life. And so maybe you're here this morning and maybe you, you identify with that, that you're a person that is up on the mountain, but you're also a person that maybe is deep in the valley in certain situations. Your emotions get up and then your emotions get down and it almost seems like you have these two different identities at times. This is kind of the idea behind the name of Thomas. But I love it in this text that the writers include this story because once again, it, it reveals the heart of God to say, you know what, I care about people like Thomas. I care about people that have the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. I care about people that aren't afraid to ask difficult questions. I care about people that have critical, analytical minds, and they don't just buy the narrative of the day, but they want to search out things in their life and discover for themselves, and they want to really pursue after truth. They want some circumstantial evidence to kind of support the claims that people are making. And we see this here in John chapter 20. Jesus says, I care about those types of people, and I will pursue them, and I will chase after them, and reveal myself as a resurrected Lord to their life. And ultimately, this speaks to what's called the restorative heart of Jesus. Now, in this text, what we see, I believe, are three simple things that are very powerful for us to understand from the narrative here today. Number one, we see this truth. Jesus isn't offended by our doubt. How many people have ever had a season in your life where you've doubted the things of God. You've doubted your faith. You've doubted your belief. You've questioned some of the things that you believe for many years. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever had experiences of doubt? Even the great Billy Graham confessed openly, I had seasons of doubt where I wondered, and what I'm preaching, and what I'm preaching, is it true? Is it valid? Or is it just a made-up religion? And when we look at the story of Thomas here in John chapter 20, we see this, that Jesus, he's not offended by Thomas's doubt. And beloved, I would say that is good news for every single one of us here this morning. Tim Keller said this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently 
to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflections. And so many people believe that most of the time our experiences of doubt come either in times of tragedy and hardship where things didn't go the way we anticipated them to be, or they come when our faith is challenged and questioned by those close to us. And most of the time, this is where doubt formulates. Now, most of those involved in what's called the social sciences, sciences believe that as human beings, we have what's called a process of formation. Everyone say that, a process of formation. And in the process, or process, however you want to say it, uh, tomato, tomato, whatever, um, I'm still figuring out between the U.S. and Canada how I should say that, but in the process of formation, there are essentially, thank you, Laura, for laughing. One person got that joke. <laughs> there are essentially three stages in our human development. The first stage is what's called construction. And construction is usually the belief system we were raised with. It's usually formed by our, our family of origin. Sometimes it's formed by our ethnic identity or our, our uh, cultural upbringing. A lot of times it's formed by the religion we were raised with or the worldview we were raised with. It's, it's connected to those early years, just that idea of construction. But in our process of formation, there's this area of deconstruction that every single person will have to go through in some point in their life. And it's simply this, it's the questioning and evaluation of our inherited belief system. A lot of times this happens within the young adult age. Uh, pastoring for 20 plus years on the university campus, we saw this over and over again where, where students would come to the university campus and finally they're away from mom and dad and they have a little bit of freedom. They have a little bit of liberty. They have a little bit of independence and they, they want to wrestle with what their, their formation has been and how they've been raised. They want to question their very belief system. And so they begin to go through this time of deconstruction. But the third stage is what's called reconstruction. And reconstruction is the rebuilding and solidification of our belief system. So construction, deconstruction, then also reconstruction. Now, we right now are in an interesting cultural moment where it seems like all around us there are many people, especially in the emerging generations, that are going through this time or this experience of deconstruction where they're, they're questioning everything. It's interesting to note that millennials and Gen Z were actually raised in education to never be afraid to ask difficult questions. That just because someone has a title, a position, that doesn't mean that you should trust them. And so there was a day with the, the Gen X generation, the boomer generation, and the traditionalists, where if someone had the title of principal, if someone had the title of teacher, if someone had the title of pastor, if someone had the title of prime minister or president, that title commanded some type of respect or authority or this idea that we should trust those positions of authority. But what has happened is those days are no longer true or valid in the emerging generation. Just because someone has a title doesn't mean you should trust them. And so they're taught, they're raised to question everything, no matter the source that is presenting the information at hand. And so many times, naturally, they go through this constant realm of deconstruction, where they're questioning and evaluating their inherited belief systems, where they're putting things on the table and saying, do I actually believe in what I was raised with or the way of thinking that I was raised with? Now, there's a guy by the name of John Mark Comer. He pastored in Portland, Oregon, a very liberal, a very progressive, a very secular society for many, many years. And he talks a lot about this idea of deconstruction and how much of culture is seeing this even in the church today. 
And I want to make note of this, that there is a good form of deconstruction as well as a bad form of deconstruction. That deconstruction, not all of it is bad. It's actually necessary for our formation, for our growth as individuals. When we think about a good form of deconstruction, we think about the prophets who deconstructed the abuses of Israel's power under their kingdom rule and reign. They were calling into account some of the abuses that they they were seeing. When we think about a good form of deconstruction, we think about Jesus with the pharisaical abuses where they were adding their tradition to the law and they're trying to make all these legalistic practices for the people to abide by. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, that's absolutely nonsense, you missed the point. It's not about just these rules of, of do's and don'ts. And so Jesus is actually deconstructing the pharisaical system. When you think about good deconstruction, we think about the, uh, many of the reformers like Luther and Zwingli and some of the Protestant minds who said, you know what, there's some serious abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, and we want to deconstruct that. We want to expose that for what it is. When you think about deconstructionism that is good, you think of many times the abolitionists in the South, who are Christians devoted to the Word of God, who deconstructed many of the evils of antebellum slavery, or actually all of the evil of antebellum slavery. When you think about deconstruction, you think about the early Pentecostals. We as a Pentecostal people actually went through a season of deconstruction in our foundation where we said, uh, I don't know if this idea of what's called cessationism is true biblically. And cessationism is the gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer for today. What we read about in the books of, book of Acts is no longer for today. And so the early P Pentecostals, they had this deconstructionism where they said, you know what, I don't think that's true. And, and what you guys are teaching in your pulpits doesn't line up with the way I read the Bible. So they went through this season of deconstruction. So there is a good form of deconstruction that can happen and actually should happen. When we look, out through, uh, look back through church history, we should look at these seasons of deconstruction and say, praise God. But when we see that type of deconstruction, the question that is always being presented there is simply this. Does this look and sound like Jesus in his way or not? Does this line up with God's word or not? And so in those good seasons of deconstruction, that is an important question. Does this look and sound like the way of Jesus or not? Does this line up with God's eternal word or not? And if it doesn't, then there needs to be some tearing down of this very thing, even some of the systems at play. And so everyone say this, there is a good deconstruction. However, you don't have to say that part, but however, <laughs> there is also a bad form of deconstructionism. You can stop repeating, all right. <laughs> and in this bad form of deconstruction, this type of deconstruction that we're seeing in so much of society today is rooted in what's called postmodernism, progressivism, and secularism. If you don't know what those things mean, you need to Google them and look them up because you're living in a society full of those things. And it's important that we understand the indoctrination that is happening in our culture, that is happening in our schools, that is happening in our media, that is happening in our politics. So there is a bad form of deconstructionism that is happening today that is rooted in postmodernism, progressivism, or secularism. And in this form of deconstruction, the idea is that it wants to use modern ideologies, empty philosophies, 
or even pseudosciences to try and deconstruct the eternal, timeless truths of the Word of God and 2,000 years of church orthodoxy and sound doctrine. This, beloved, is a bad form of deconstructionism where they want to use postmodern thought, secularist thought, often modern ideas around pseudosciences to try to tear down the eternal truths of God's word that we believe as Christians, or at least should believe, is eternal, is authoritative, is inerrant, and is true. And because it doesn't always fit the cultural norms of the day, we want to use the thinking and the ways of the world to try to deconstruct this. And that is a bad, bad, bad form of deconstruction. You see, one way of deconstruction uses the word of God or the way of Jesus to deconstruct the corruption and deceit of humanity in the church. The other uses the corruption and deceit of humanity to try and deconstruct the word of God in the way of Jesus. You see, in the moment that we are in right now, there is a prevalent falsehood that exists. And it is this. New ideas are always good. If it's a new idea, if it's a new thought, it must be good. And this is at the root of much of the modern deconstruction that we are seeing, not just in the world, but in the church today. If there's a new way of thinking, if there's a new idea, if it's somehow someone has come up and has a little blog about it with a little bit of pseudo-research, then it must be a good idea. I want to say this. Not everything proposed in the last decade has been good or beneficial. And bad ideas often lead to tragic consequences. And so as a church, we must learn to discern and critique wisely, no matter what the narrative is outside of these four walls in the world in which we live. Just because someone's saying it, and sometimes they have letters behind their names, doesn't mean it's actually factual and true. And many times, it's more connected to emotionalism and certain narratives rather than not just the truth of God's word, but actually a lot of science that backs up the truth of what the word of God has said for millennia. And so we must understand that, that in the season of deconstructionism that people go through and societies go through and is often necessary, there are things being exposed that need to come down, there are systems that have been exposed that need to come down, and God in his grace is working, we must understand that we're not meant to camp out or get stuck in the moment of deconstruction, but we're called to have a moment of reconstruction, a rebuilding or solidifying of what we believe. And I want to speak for a moment to a little bit of my generation and young, younger. The generations that came before us were great at building. They didn't build everything right, but they were great at building. And not everything that they built was bad or evil or nonsense. This whole saying of, well, it's 2022, is absolute nonsense and fooey, by the way. That's chronological snobbery where we somehow think we're so much more advanced than the generations that have gone on before us. The generations that went on before us were great at building. Some things were good, some things were bad. Some things need to come down, some things need to remain or be redeemed or restored. Our generation, we're known for tearing things down, we're not known for building. 
And so it's important that we understand that, that in our deconstructing, in our critiquing, in our analyzing, that's fine, that's normal, but we better have some proposed ideas and plans for how to build and solidify some things. All right, that was a lot about point number one, but it's an important point, and it's a very specific cultural moment that we need to address. All right, number two from this story, we see this. Jesus will often meet us in our place of questioning. So number one, he's not offended by our doubts. Jesus is not offended when we have seasons of doubt or deconstruction. Point number two, Jesus will actually meet us in our place of questioning. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with what? All your heart. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. God is a God who likes to play hide and seek. Now that sounds too simplified, but I'll explain it a moment. God is a God who says, I want you to seek me with your, with your whole heart, your mind, your strength, all your abilities. And when you do that, I will reveal myself more and more to you. God is a God who desires for us to know him. And so, so sometimes what starts off as a a healthy mode of deconstruction can easily lead to an unhealthy mode of deconstruction. And so we must learn to see that our times of questioning or doubt are not a sign of weakness in our faith. Rather, they are often a sign of a deeper longing for truth and assurance in our faith. Our times of doubt, our times of questioning, if you've ever gone through this journey of faith and you've had a skepticism, or you've had doubt, or you've had questions, that's not a sign of weakness in your faith. That's a sign that you are on a pursuit for truth, that you are desiring to go deeper in your faith. You are desiring to experience God in fresh and new ways. And so the key is whether we continually lean into God, his word, his spirit, and the community of believers in these seasons, or do we allow the enemy to begin to separate and isolate us in these seasons. One leads to health, the other leads to destruction. I would propose that one of the greatest tactics of the devil is to separate and isolate believers. One of the greatest tactics of the enemy is to get us in isolation. Because when we are in isolation, he can reap havoc on our lives, especially in these seasons of questioning and doubt and skepticism and deconstruction. And so the question we have to ask in these seasons of doubting, just like Thomas, are we leaning into God or are we running away from God? Are we leaning into the church or are we running away from the church? And if we're running away from the church, this is a strong statement, I'll explain it more next week when we talk about Peter, when we're running away from the church, we're running away from Jesus. You cannot have Jesus without his church. It's impossible. It doesn't mean that there aren't things in the church that need to be dealt with, that need to be exposed, that need to be corrected. It doesn't mean that the church always gets it right. The church gets it wrong many times throughout history. But the church is God's idea. It's Jesus' idea and his promises that he would build it and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I have never, never 
in 20 years of ministry seen anyone, and I've seen a lot of them who say, you know what, I'm done with the church, it's gonna be me and Jesus, and they remain steadfast in their faith. I've never seen it. Every person that starts down that road ends up completely backsliding that I've seen in my experience. Every single person. And so we must make note of that, that in our seasons of questioning and doubt, it's not a weakness of our faith, but are we leaning into his word? Are we leaning into God? And are we leaning into the community of the believers or are we running away from those things? If we're running away from those things, we're running away from Jesus. The church will always be full of brokenness. Why? Because we all hear. And last time I checked, every single one of us have brokenness in our lives. The church will always have dysfunction in it. Why? Because we all here. And every one of us have a little bit of uh, dysfunction in our life, right? And so we must understand that, yes, there are times and seasons where even the church goes through some critique, and it's necessary, and God is working in it. But we don't run away from the church because of those moments of exposure and critique. No, we invest into the body of Christ. We engage more than ever before and we contribute what God is doing in our lives and we allow other brothers and sisters to come around us and to sharpen us in our faith and this is how we grow in community. If we get isolated, we cannot experience what God intends for us as individuals in the body of Christ. Christ. And so if we're running away from the church, we're actually running away from Jesus. You can't have one without the other. It's inseparable. Once again, we'll talk about that more next week. Number three, we see this in the story of Thomas. Jesus reveals himself in unique ways to each of us. I love this about the story of Thomas. God is so grand, so big, so powerful, and yet so personable that he knows what people need to experience him. Like for a lot of the disciples, the women come, and they say, well, we'll run to the tomb, and then he reveals himself to them, and they're like, okay, we've seen it. They come to Thomas, and the testimony of others isn't enough. Thomas says, no, for me, I need to experience it myself. I need to not just visually see it, because it might be a, a ghost, or a phantom, or something like that, and we might just be making this up in our minds, but no, I need to reach out and touch it in a tangible way. So Thomas, he has this doubt, he has this questioning, and Jesus comes to him and he says, Thomas, come here. I want you to see, I want you to experience for yourself. You said something and how you wanted me, uh, how, how you wanted to experience me, and I want you to come now, put your hand on my side, put your hand on my hands, and see it firsthand for yourself. And this actually reveals the heart of God for his people. That God, I believe this, desires to reveal himself through his son Jesus to each and every one of you in a very unique way. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up as a BK. I grew up around godly parents who love the Lord. I grew up going to camps and conventions and services. And I had a belief in God, but I didn't have a personal experience really with God, I believe, until I was 17 years old. And I went through a season in my own life, my brother and I, where we saw so much hypocrisy in the church and we saw our father goes through some things that we just thought, I want nothing to do with the church. And my brother and I, we, we ran away from the church. We ran away from, from God. It's not, I don't think we ever start, stopped doubting, but we ran away from this thing called Christianity and following Jesus. And I remember I was at a camp in eastern Ontario, and I was sitting there uh, at the back hanging out with my buddies, and the service was going on. And I was so far from God, so far away from God. 
And I was just bitter and mad and hurt. And You know, pastor's kids go through a lot, by the way. They experience and they see a lot of things. Even as a parent, we try to protect them, they still see and experience so many things. And I remember sitting there just frustrated, like, God, this is, I don't know, if, if people really are Christians, how could they ever act that way towards my father? How could they ever say those things? How could they ever do those things? And I just don't know if it's real. And I felt like in that service at 17 years old, the Lord spoke to me and said, Tim, I want to make myself known to you for yourself, not because of your parents' position or title. I want you to experience me for the first time for yourself, not because of the home you were raised in. Would you open yourself up to that? And I remember just simply saying, God, I'm open to whatever you have. And I felt an overwhelming sense of what I now know was the Holy Spirit coming over me. I just began to weep and cry, just weep and cry. And just, and sometimes even I was letting out groans, if that makes sense. I was just letting out painful groans in this moment as the Holy Spirit was just doing something in my life. And that, that moment marked me, I believe, for eternity, where all of a sudden, even though I've been raised in the church and seen things and experienced things, I felt like in that moment my faith became my own because Jesus came and he revealed himself to Tim Woodcock in a unique way. It wasn't because of what my parents told me. It wasn't because of the faith I was raised in. I had my own encounter. And this is what we see in the life of Thomas. His rational, analytical mind is getting the best of him in this moment. And Jesus doesn't write him off. Jesus comes and says, I'll meet you right where you are at. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus, for 2,000 years now, has been coming and meeting people right where they are at. In the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their doubts and questions, even in their seasons of deconstructing what they believe and why they believe it, Jesus doesn't run away from you. Jesus runs towards you. And so I would encourage you here this morning, stop running from Jesus. Stop running from his word. Stop running from timeless truth. Stop running from the people of God. Run towards Jesus, even if you don't have everything figured out right now in this moment. Amen? And this is the good news of the gospel. And so though Thomas is, is full of doubt and his mind is getting the best of him, Jesus comes, he reveals himself as the resurrected Lord in a way that Thomas needed, and he literally ignites faith in the life of Thomas. Now, what happened to Thomas after this? Church history, because I love history if you haven't figured that out by now. Anyway, it's church history actually tells us that Thomas... After Jesus ascends into the heavens, he, pre he preaches in ancient Babylon near the Tigris and Euphrates River where Iraq is today. You know, in Iraq today, there are underground churches being led by women that are being filled with people that are coming and finding these churches, not because of word of mouth, not because someone marketed it on a billboard or they had a flashy website. There are people walking into these churches saying, I felt I was supposed to come and find you because this person named Jesus came and revealed himself to me and said, go find these people. Like, come on. Come on. Like, this is supernatural stuff happening today. The greatest revival happening in the world today in Iraq and Iran, and many people say, I, Jesus walked into my room and said, I'm supposed to connect with these people, right? Why? Because Jesus reveals himself to each and every one of us. So Thomas, he preaches in Iraq. He travels to Persia, present-day Iran, and continues to win disciples to the Christian faith. Then he sails south to Malabar on the west coast of India in 52 AD. 
He preaches, establishes churches, and wins to Christ high caste Brahmins as well as others. Now when the Portuguese land in India in the early 1600s, they find a group of Christians there known as the Mar Tama Church, established through Thomas's preaching a millennium and a half before. That the gospel is in India, India today because Jesus didn't give up on Thomas and he reignited faith in his life and he ends up establishing churches there in India. Finally, Thomas travels to the east coast of India, preaching relentlessly. He is killed near Mylapore, about 72 AD, near present-day Madras. And tradition tells us that he is thrown into a pit, then pierced through with a spear thrown by a Brahmin. Now, I want you to see this. Thomas, who had so adamantly proclaimed his unbelief, his doubt, ended up carrying the Christian message of the gospel and the way of Jesus to the ends of the earth in his generation. Thomas, who said, unless I see it for myself, unless I experience it for myself, and for, forever nicknamed as Doubting Thomas, all of a sudden encounters the risen Lord, has a transformation of heart and life, and he becomes one of the greatest missionaries to the world, and he becomes a martyr for his faith, all because Jesus chased after him when he was running, when Thomas was running away from and so, beloved, I love this, that Jesus, he's relentless in that pursuit of our hearts. And even when we keep turning away and questioning and doubt and on the slippery slope away from him, Jesus comes and he says, I'm not done with you. I'm not giving up on you. You've given up on me, but I'm not giving up on you. So I want us to stand to our feet here this morning in closing here today. I want to invite the team to come back out. And I actually have a couple of our youth that are gonna come and, and help me out with communion here today. So Micah and Kari, if you are here, if you guys wouldn't mind coming up here, they're gonna help us in participating in this 2,000 plus year sacrament of the church. Like this is a good tradition, by the way. Just throwing that out there. This is a good tradition. I believe that one of the greatest in most beautiful ways that Jesus reveals himself or makes himself known is through the power of the table and the sacrament, the practice of communion. You see, in Jesus' day, the table was a place of acceptance, affirmation, and belonging. In fact, did you know it was one of the major reasons that Jesus was criticized over and over again in the gospel? Why do you sit down and share a meal with the prostitute and the harlot? Why do you shit, uh, sit down? Uh, that other word, down. <laughs> I sometimes hybrid words together and then it comes out wrong. So why do you sit down with the religious Pharisees of the day and share a meal with them, right? And so this is a powerful thing that we see in Jesus, that he comes and he invites all to share a meal with him. All to the table to participate in this powerful thing. And I love it that in the Gospels, when we read it, it says that on the night, I want you to catch this, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and he took the bread. And he said, guys, I want you to understand what I am about to do for you. Like that's a relentless pursuit of these people. I know you're going to abandon me, I know you're going to flee my side. I know you're going to turn your back on me. I know you're going to betray me, Judas. But I'm not turning my back on you. 
I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to give up on you, though you're giving up on me. And he invites them to the table to sit down and share a meal with them. And so this morning, I have a prayer I want us to pray in consecration together. And I'm going to have Micah pray over the bread. There he is. I'm going to have uh, Kari. Did I say it right, Kari? Kari's going to pray over the cup. And then we're going to participate in this together. So I want us to say this prayer collectively together. Ready? Father eternal, giver of light and grace, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor and what we have thought and what we have said and done. Through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we have wounded your love and marred your image in us. We are sorry and ashamed and repent of all of our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Michael, would you go ahead and pray over the, the bread today? Thank you, Pastor. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this bread that represents your body that was broken for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross that we may experience forgiveness from sin. I pray that as we go about our week ahead, we would look to represent the body of Christ, being an example to those around us. And we also pray for those in this room who may be sick or burdened, that you would heal and restore them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us partake of the bread together. Kari, would you pray over the cup here? I'll let you finish the bread first, sorry. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we're able to gather here today and just take, partake in this together. Um, I pray that as we um, eat this bread and drink the juice, that we would just remember what you've done on the cross for us yes. and what that means for us in the past and today and in the future. And I pray that we would not keep this knowledge that we have of your love and everything that you do for us and your glory. I pray that we wouldn't just keep this knowledge to ourselves, but to bring it to the world and to everyone around us because, Lord, you didn't just die for those of us who are in this room today. You died for everyone on the planet and those who are to come. So I pray that we would just be vessels for your love to everyone and just... Um, yeah, just preach your word and everything that we know of you to others as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us partake of the cup together. And this morning, if you're here and you need prayer for anything, we have an incredible prayer team that's going to come to the front. They would love to spend some time in prayer. If you've got to go, we bless you. But I want us to close in this song. I will make room for you one more time. And uh, let's sing this collectively together. Let's sing it out. See, I will make room. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Sing it again. 
may you go in the power and strength of his might. May you walk in his ways. May you understand that Jesus is coming after you no matter how much you try to run from him. Jesus is not offended by your doubt. He will meet you in that place and he will reveal himself as a resurrected Lord, even in those moments of questioning. Amen? And I want to say this. I believe the church is in good hands. I believe that God is raising up a revival generation of radical disciples that are going to do incredible things for the sake of the kingdom. I know we go through seasons where people question and doubt, what will the church look like? I'm not worried about it. You know why? Because Jesus is building it. And I look on the stage here today and I look at the prayer that we had here today and I think, wow, there's going to be a great revival that happens in Canada because of these young people. Amen. Bless you. Have an incredible week. If you want prayer for anything, we would love to uh, spend time praying with you. All right. Bless you.